This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So for those of you who were here last week, you will know that we started a five-part series based on the Magiya Sutta, which is found in a text, a collection called the Udana. It's number 4.1. And the Magiya Sutta is basically about a monk who decided to practice alone in seclusion, even though the Buddha said, hey, I don't think you're ready for this. But he went off anyway. That's not a new direct quote, of course. But um, he went off anyway and found it very difficult. His mind was extremely agitated and restless. And so he came back to the Buddha, and the Buddha said there are five conditions that are required in order for one to make good use of time in meditation and in seclusion. And he said these five preconditions include Good friendship, that's the first, and we spoke of that last week. Virtue and restraint, which I'll speak about today. And then next week I'll speak about the third, which is engaging in talk on the Dhamma. And then as the series goes on, we'll address effort and wisdom as the last two preconditions. And these five preconditions are arranged in a sequence because it is said that it is expected that one who has the condition of good friends will develop virtue and restraint. And so to, to quote from the Magiya Sutta on the description of virtue, it says, A bhikkhu who is virtuous lives restrained by the restraint of the patimoka, endowed with conduct and resort, Seeing danger in the smallest faults, he trains in the training rules he has accepted. When mind deliverance is as yet immature, Magia, this is the second thing that leads to its maturity. So here it says he lives restrained by the restraint of the Patimoka. Now the Patimoka describes is the term for the monastic vows that a monk takes. A lay person would, instead of having the patimoka, would take five lay precepts. But in any case, whatever training rules we have accepted, this development of virtue asks us to bring attention and to consider the arena of our action and our conduct. The development of virtue in Buddhism is not about obedience to rules. The Buddhist practice of virtue is exploratory and rules are undertaken as voluntary and intentional trainings. They're a way to frame our experience and to highlight actions so that we become more mindful and wise in those situations. It is developed through mindfulness primarily and it's intertwined with wisdom and reflection and reinforced by an inner strength and integrity that has a capacity for restraint. So the practice of virtue is one of the primary ways that we develop self-respect 
that we develop the Dhamma in our lives, that we integrate this practice into the way we live and the way we interact. The development of virtue requires the application of our mindfulness and our wisdom to the complex actions of body, speech, and mind. It is not enough to just sit with our eyes closed watching the breath and saying that we're virtuous. We have to bring the wisdom and the mindfulness right into the complexity of our interactions. Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master, asked a rhetorical question. He asked, how can you make a cow feel free and at ease? And then he answered it and he said, you give her a fenced-in pasture. And I like this idea of a fenced-in pasture because sometimes we need structure and we benefit by discipline. And we can use wise, a wise relationship to discipline in order to experience freedom and ease. Choice is at the core of the development of virtue. We make choices in every moment, but sometimes we're not aware of those choices because we passively comply with the force of conditioned, repeated, and familiar patterns. When we actively engage in this choice-making, then we have the opportunity to reflect on what's happening, to reflect on our experience, and then to bring wisdom to those decisions and incrementally remove the causes of suffering in our lives and enhance the causes of happiness in our lives. There's an interesting instruction that's offered in the middle-length discourses in a sutta called Effacement. And this discourse lists 44 harmful qualities or actions that include such things as cruelty, killing, malicious speech, false speech, gossip, covetousness, wrong intention, wrong effort, restlessness, avariciousness, conceit, being obstinate, negligence, shamelessness, laziness, unmindfulness, attachment to views. It goes on and on. I mean, there are 44 possible unwholesome qualities or actions. And regarding each of these negative qualities, the practitioner is reminded of two things. First, that we can practice inclining our minds by thinking. Others may be blank, say, others may be lazy, but I shall not be lazy. Others may be cruel, but I shall not be cruel. Others may engage in gossip, but I will not engage in gossip. And so it goes through all 44 of these negative qualities, saying we can recognize that though others may do this, I will not do this. It's a very interesting commitment to recognize that just because others do it does not mean that we need to slide into that pattern. We can recognize something in the world and choose to not develop that.
The second teaching in this discourse goes through the same 44 qualities again. And it says that one can make a wise choice to avoid the unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. And the instruction says, suppose there were an uneven path and another even path by which to avoid it. And suppose there were an uneven ford and another even ford by which to avoid it. A person given to killing living beings has abstention from killing living beings by which to avoid it. One given to gossip has abstention from gossip by which to avoid it. One given to restlessness has non-restlessness by which to avoid it. One given to fraud has non-fraud by which to avoid it. One given to negligence has has diligence by which to avoid it. One given to laziness has the arousal of energy by which to avoid it. So it goes through those 44, describing that for every negative action of body, speech, or mind, or tendency, we have not doing it. We have a way to avoid it through refraining from it. Hurtful actions, harmful habits only happen because we do them. And we have an alternative. We can make a choice. But we need to train ourselves in restraint to refrain from perpetuating these conditioned harmful patterns. The use of the training precepts is a great support for the training in virtuous actions. And these five lay precepts include the commitment, the training precept, to not kill other living beings. The second is to not steal, to refrain from taking what is not given. The third is to not cause harm through sexuality, through deceit, rape, or force of any kind. And the fourth is to refrain from false speech, from lying, from abusive language, from malicious and frivolous speech. And the fifth is to not use substances that intoxicate the mind. These are the five basic training precepts. We can find another list of ten unwholesome actions, wholesome and unwholesome actions, but they're basically the same list except that they include some actions of mind, such as covetousness and wrong view. And it, it, and it gives more details about the aspects of wrong speech. Now, the practice of virtue may not sound so exciting. I think every meditation center has learned that when they offer a course on virtue, the attendance is low. So we have to slip it in here and there (laughs) because it's really important. It is a beautiful training and it's a very essential foundation for meditation, for mindfulness, for concentration. Every serious practitioner that I know loves the practice of the precepts and virtue because we take tremendous care with our actions and then delight in the potential to make these wise choices day in and day out.
Keeping our precepts and our ethical values becomes more important to us than conforming to social norms, gaining a personal advantage, or securing a sense of belonging in a community or group. Precepts create a container of safety for our own minds and for all the beings that we live near. To keep the precepts, we must be willing, though, to stand our ground sometimes so that we don't cross our ethical lines. And sometimes we have to say no, not just to external expectations or pressures, but to the inner cravings that might corrupt our commitments. It requires restraint. It requires renunciation. The keeping of the precepts requires the ability to let go. And what we let go of is conceit and anger, fear and desire and craving. This is not a practice of following rules out of fear, fear of being caught. Quite the contrary, it's a training of the mind so that we train our minds to incline towards what's wholesome, to delight in the wholesome, and to bring mindfulness and wisdom to the complexity of our worldly activities so that we unravel the forces of craving and self-interest that might thwart our potential for abiding in deep happiness. Precept training helps create an environment of peace, of ease, and of trust, both internally and externally. We learned to trust our own intention, and we realize that when we keep the precepts consistently, we find that other people are more likely to trust us. Breaking the precepts, though, agitates the mind, and it creates regret, remorse, worry, guilt, distrust, disharmony. It basically creates a toxic environment mentally, socially, and emotionally. And that toxicity hinders meditation practice. But this training in virtue, though beautiful and foundational, to the art of meditation is not always easy and it's not always pleasant. We may sometimes have to witness humiliating, even ugly or embarrassing tendencies towards anger or craving. We may need to feel the pain of those old bad habits before we're convinced that we actually can and want to let them go. We'll need to stay steady and true to our commitments to virtue while we struggle to see the forces of craving and desire clearly as we struggle to face the selfishness that might arise within our own minds. We must be willing to endure the pain and sometimes the humiliation of looking face to face at our own unwholesome tendencies until we can truly free the mind from their influence. If we don't have the strength to feel the pain that comes from unskillful actions, then we may deny those forces. We may numb our emotional response to them and seek comfort through dulling the mind, through probably other bad habits. 
We might even just resign ourselves to just go through with the harmful actions, to get it over with, to just do it, and to be, be that person that we really don't want to be. The Buddha taught his own son, Rahula, to reflect before he undertook an action so that he could consider his intention that was inspiring that action. And then during the course of doing the action, to reflect again, to consider what was happening here? How was he engaging in it? What were the mental states and experiences that are occurring as he's doing the action? And then after the action was completed, to reflect again so that he could learn what was the result of that action and then apply that lesson in the future. No one is expected to be perfect. No one is condemned for our errors. The teachings on the precepts are not used to measure a person's worth. They're trainings that integrate mindfulness and exploration and restraint into the everyday actions that we take in life. When working with virtue, you'll be exploring your inner urges and the underlying tendencies. Often these tendencies will appear, though at moments when we're stressed, when we're tired, or when we're just too busy to care. These are the moments when these negative tendencies tend to erupt. They're the moments, though, when we need the most diligence so that we can use the support of our ethical commitments, our precepts, to refrain from unwholesome actions, from actions that are going to cause us greater problems in the future. And then after we have successfully refrained, even for just a moment, and we have let an opportunity to do something mean pass, and we didn't do it, that's a moment of virtue. Maybe you had some little nasty thought you were about to say, and you bit your tongue. That's a moment of virtue. That's a moment, though, when we can experience the capacity that we have to not do, to practice restraint, and not let the mind now relax in a kind of arrogant complacency that's going to reward that one moment of virtue by indulging in vice in the next moment. The reward for virtue is the happiness that comes through trusting ourselves. And it produces conducive conditions for the further development of the mind through concentration, insight, and peace. We can each work with these precepts. We can practice making wise choices. We can develop the strength of restraint and protect ourselves from our own unwanted tendencies. I'd like you all to consider a virtuous action that you have done. In fact, I'd like you to consider three virtuous actions. One action that you did in physical action, that you actually did a bodily action that was virtuous. 
that could have been refraining from doing a harmful action, because that counts as virtue. Or it could be a positive virtuous action of compassion or generosity or kindness, honesty, integrity. But I'd also like you to think of the other two aspects of action that are usually less thought of. Can you think of a virtuous speech action that you have done? Something useful, kind, helpful that you have said, or something harmful that you refrained from saying? And I'd also like you to think of a mental action. Something that you have developed within your mind or abandoned within your mind. A thought. A mental state that you related to wisely. An attitude. So as you consider a virtuous action in body, speech, and mind, please consider what they felt like. What did it feel like to engage in those actions? Maybe you didn't have the opportunity to reflect before and during, but now you can reflect after. What was that experience like for you? And then consider what supports the development of virtue in your life. And what keeps you from living with impeccable virtue? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.